Good evening. Please excuse my scratchy voice. I've got a bit of a cold this evening. Yeah. Always happens at the beginning of the semester. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this, the first event in our speaker series this year, Digital Dystopias, Truth and Representation in the Internet Age. Uh, I'm really excited about this year's series. It's a very timely topic. Those of you who were here for the last event last spring will, rem will remember that the final question of that event, uh, and of course that was a, a series about does democracy still work, also, uh, and someone at the very end said, but what about the internet? And I said, oh, we have a series about that. And here it is. Uh, so I'm, as I say, I'm very excited about this. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Shannon Best, who's the magician who makes all of these things come together. She's at the back of the room. Please give her a round of applause. As well, I'd like to thank Kristen Bazzio and Julian Hader, the two faculty members at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies who have made this come together this year, who came up with the topic, the theme, and the speakers. Uh, so thanks very much. I want to welcome those who are watching this as we're live streaming it this evening. So welcome to all parts of far uh, and wide. I should as well thank our sponsors, uh, Style Weekly, uh, who've been a sponsor of, of this series for many years now, uh, and also Nations Bank. And now it's my pleasure, as I always do at these events, to introduce uh, a, a student who will in turn introduce our speaker this evening. So I'd like to introduce to you Jepson School of Leadership Studies senior, uh, Maureen Usman. Uh, she uh, is a double major, uh, as many of our students are, in leadership studies and in economics. Uh, so that's close, near and dear to my heart since I'm an economist. Uh, she's an Oliver Hill multicultural scholar. She's a student mentor in the Scholars uh, Latinx Initiative. She's president of her sorority, Kappa Delta. She's in the business fraternity, uh, Alpha Kappa Psi as well. And she's a member of the Jepson School's Jepson Corps. She's a native of Leewood, Kansas. Um, we found out today that she came to the University of Richmond in part because of the essay that was um, a prompt when she was a senior uh, getting ready to apply for students, uh, for universities, um, talking about what it is to be a spider, what it means to be a spider. So we're very glad that we had that wonderful prompt that got her interested in, in the University of Richmond. Uh, after graduation, Maureen hopes to teach English abroad for a year before she returns to the United States to pursue a career in education policy. Please welcome Maureen to the stage. It is my privilege to introduce acclaimed book author and journalist Katie Hafner. For 10 years, Ms. Hafner was on the staff of the New York Times, where she remains a frequent contributor, writing on technology, healthcare, and society. She has also worked at Newsweek and Businessweek, and has written for the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Wired, The New Republic, The Huffington Post, and O, oh, The Oprah Magazine. She's the author of six nonfiction books, including Where Wizards Stay Up Late, a book she co-authored with her late husband, Matthew Lyon, on the origins of the internet. Ms. Hafner's other books focus on topics ranging from computer ha hackers, German reunification, and the pianist Glenn Gould. 
Her most recent book, Mother, Daughter, Me, is a memoir about her relationship with her mother and daughter. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and recently finished a novel. Please join me in welcoming Katie Hafner to the stage. Thanks for that, Maureen. That was lovely. And thank you to Julian and Kristen and Dean Peart. And also, of course, to Shannon Best, who got in touch with me actually almost a year ago about this. And I'm like, oh, a year away, that's fine. I'll, I can do that. And then I disappear, but she didn't. <laughs> so thank you so much for staying on me. Uh, so I'm going to put my watch here dutifully and uh, look at it regularly so that I don't bore you to tears. Or even if I do bore you to tears, it won't last too long. Uh, what I do want to tell you right away is that I am going to be the, the happy voice of this series. I am the um, tiptoeing through the tulips uh, because I see that you're... You're going to have a lot of uh, speakers coming up in the series who will touch more on the dark side of things. And um, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here to tell you about the origins of something that started out as really uh, extremely, uh, extremely benign, hopeful, um, filled with promise. Uh, I even did a whole PowerPoint for this. I don't even know how to use PowerPoint. My husband helped me. So if there are glitches, uh, you'll uh, just tap your head, and, and then I'll see that I've made a mistake. If I'm super boring, tap your head several times. So anyway, uh, I did, in fact, write this book with um, my late husband, uh, Matt Lyon, who I have to tell you came up with the title, which I love. Uh, and you know, book titles are extremely hard to kind of figure out. And our original title was um, something like, oh, I'm even embarrassed to tell you, something like Building Cyberspace. <laughs> and um, that was the working title with Simon and & Schuster. And then uh, he woke me up one morning at two in the morning, at two in the morning and he said, I've got it where wizards stay up late, and I'm like, is it two in the morning, or did he just say gibberish? And uh, it's actually from a James Merrill poem about physicists at Los Alamos, which, um, which I love. And um, it does not, what I have to tell you is I am not going to talk about the menacing cesspool that has become the internet. This talk is going to be much more about its halcyon origins. So this, <clears throat> which is what a lot of people are hoping, <laughs> is, is what I'm going to leave to others, the, um, the aforementioned people who will come after me. Uh, and what I've seen, and what, I, what I'm going to tell you, I don't know if there's a pointer on here, but if you see, this is basically, and it only goes up to the year 2000, this is basically a timeline of the growth of hosts on the internet. And it, as I said, it only goes up to 2000, and it's something like 40 million in 2000, and the number today is something like 150 billion. And it's quite amazing. 
But anyway, I don't even have to worry about anything after like 1990 because that's when my research ended. And the way, and the way it looked, I'm kind of lying because when I was at the Times, well, first Newsweek and then the New York Times, I wrote exclusively about technology. So if you have questions afterwards, you know, ask me anything, just don't ask me about blockchain. Um, <laughs> The man I'm married to now who's the smartest, funniest guy in the world, if I say anything like, honey, why won't the car start? I don't know, blockchain. <laughs> so so uh, this is what it looked like when I was writing about it, uh, run, run by a bunch of, I guess those aren't rotary phones, are they? But, um, oh, they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, this was one of the network um, computing centers, one of the hubs of, the, of the, the nascent network. And let's get into it right now. So uh, first, I want to do a little bit of myth debunking. First of all, in defense of Al Gore, <laughs> uh, when I tell people that I've written a history of, of the internet, um, People say, oh, Al Gore invented it, ha, ha, ha. So I must defend the then senator from your neighboring state of Tennessee, who, in fact, um, developed what was called the High Performance Computing Act after hearing a report submitted by a group of computing networking re uh, computer networking researchers. The bill was enacted on December 9th, 1991, and that led to what Gore referred to as the information superhighway. President H. George H.W. Bush predicted that the act would help, quote, unlock the secrets of DNA, <laughs> open up foreign markets to free trade, <clears throat> and a promise of cooperation between government, academia, and interest, industry, and oh, so much more. So, that's, uh, so that's just in defense of Al Gore. Um, the uh, second myth is it was not invented by Tim Berners-Lee. He did the web. Who here, and don't be embarrassed, but who here thinks that the web and the internet are the same thing? It's okay. Yeah, good, not too many. It's, they're not. Um, I'll get into that a little bit later. And the next myth was that it was um, that the ARPANET, which is what I'll be talking about, which was the precursor to the original, to the, the original precursor to the internet, um, was created in order to a network created in order to survive a nuclear attack. A nuclear attack, and it it was a very different reason. So let's dive right into that. Um, so this man. J.C.R. Licklider, uh, to whom the book is dedicated. He was a psych psychoacoustician. And what psychoacousticians do, did do is um, one of the things that he studied was the, what's called the cocktail party problem, where um, let's say you're at a cocktail party and you're really politely listening to what someone's saying, and then someone like really interesting seems to be saying something like, a few feet away from you, and the minute you tune into that conversation, you cannot continue to 
to, to listen to or concentrate on what the person in front of you is saying, and it gets really embarrassing. And anyway, that's the cocktail party problem, and it's why actually we, our brains do, don't physically actually multitask. And so he was um, um, a psychologist, and you might be wondering, what was this guy doing? What did he, on earth, did he have to do with the... Uh, with starting computer networks. And he was a very visionary man who was really interested in um, computer um, machine interfaces. He, uh, he was at MIT, where all good nerds are born. And, and uh, so although he studied sound localization, like the cocktail party problem, he also loved computers. And he believed that a computer should be something anyone could interact with directly. In 1960, he wrote a famous paper called Man-Computer Symbiosis. And he, um, and he came up with this idea of what he called the intergalactic network. This was just kind of thinking, uh, which is what he did really well, and uh, also a really um, lovely man. And he um, became the first um, head of the Advanced Research Projects Agency's um, Information Processing Techniques Office, and I'm already going off on Jargonville. I'm so sorry. Okay, so Sputnik went up in the air in 1957, and, um, and the United States' um, reaction to that was to form its own um, Department of Defense um, arm of research uh, called ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is sometimes, um, it goes back and forth between DARPA and ARPA. Um, and back then it was um, for a while ARPA. And, uh, and they recruited Licklider to, to be in charge of, the, um, of this, branch of the agency called Information Processing Techniques. And, um, and so he uh, got to go there and kind of noodle around. At the same time, and this is where the, the myth comes in um, about, the, um, about the nuclear attack. This man, who also looks like he probably went to MIT, but he, <laughs> uh, his, name, his name was Paul Barron. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, and I'll talk a little bit about this too, I do a lot of, a lot of what I do at the New York Times these days is I write um, obits and advance obituaries. And uh, when I called him about, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago to say, Paul, I, I'm here to interview you for your, and he said, ah, Katie, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. So. Um, so then he got. He, then his son got in touch with me, and I'm going to read you something later that he um, that he that he said about this network that I think is just so beautiful. But anyway, Baron was working um, at the Rand Corporation in uh, Santa Monica, California, and he came up with this idea of what we know as packet switching. Um, is anyone familiar with packet switching? Um, oh wow, that's great. A good six people. Okay, so. <laughs> He said, um, so his idea was to build a distributed communications network that was less vulnerable to attack or disruption than conventional networks. And he, um, he outlined this in a series of technical papers published in the 60s. And his invention, so this was 11 papers that he wrote, um, 
three of which, or four of which I forget, were uh, classified. And it was to build what basically was a network using packet switching, which is basically, let me try to explain it in 25 words or fewer, which is um, you take a, a message, you, you divide it into these um, packets or discrete bun bundles, that's discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, -E, um, bundles. You send them away on the network and then they reassemble at the destination. It would be as if you took, uh, if you took an envelope and uh, put it in the mailbox, um, remember those? And you, and you uh, but before you did that, you tore it up and then it went all, on all these different routes through different states and then arrived at the destination and then got reassembled. That's packet switching. And it is, remains the technical underpinning of the network to this day. Which is which is remarkable, and um, his invention was so far ahead of its time that in the mid '60s, when he approached AT&T with the idea to build it, the company insisted it wouldn't work and refused. So, any of you who feel bad about not buying stock in Starbucks, <laughs> imagine being AT&T and refusing to build this this idea. Um, Anyway, simultaneously with Barron, with this man, Paul Barron, um, a little afterwards, there was another scientist, and I call this, um, this the, the, um, the time is ripe phenomenon. I think it happens a lot in science, where everything is aligned so that uh, the invention can occur. I think we're seeing that now. Um, uh, in things like AI, it happened with DNA, um, with the structure of DNA. We're, we had Watson and Creek over here and Linus Pauling over here. It's happened several times and it happened with packet switching, uh, which led years later to a lot of um, debate about who invented it. And then enter our heroes at, um, at DARPA. Whoopsie. Whoops, I know how to do this. There we go. Um, this doleful looking character is Bob Taylor, who was not a computer scientist. He was a psychologist like Licklider, and Licklider recruited him to Washington. And Taylor, this, the ARPANET was born of frustration on the part of this man. He had three, at the time, this was in the mid-1960s, he had three computer terminals. Back in those days, computers didn't talk to each other. They would dial up to a computer and he had, and in order to work on, an, on a remote computer, you had to actually make a connection with that computer, but you couldn't, if you, he had three computers in his office and they couldn't talk to each other. And he thought there must be something better than this. And uh, he went into his boss's office, this is a very famous story, and came out 10 minutes later and had a million dollars to build an experimental research computer network. So basically the idea was, let's see if we can get computers to talk to each other. And he hired, this man, um, who, yes, he was at MIT. He, um, his name is Larry Roberts, and he was, I must say, an absolute bona fide genius. And uh, he also died, um, well, he died rec very recently, so recently that I, um, I interviewed him last May, 
Um, so May 2018 for his advanced obituary, and I thought, oh, I've got tons of time. He looked okay. Um, and uh, he died a few months later, and, um, and uh, what was very poignant about Larry is that he was one of the few creators of the ARPANET who actually wanted to make money. Um, what's interesting is that very, very few, with very, you know, very few exceptions, very few of these guys did any of this in order to make money. And what I found most poignant about visiting Larry at the end of his life is that he was living in Redwood City, which is in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? Surrounded, surrounded by millions and millions of dollars. And he was living in a very small, one-story um, ranch home. And, uh, and, and I said, do you, are you sad that you haven't made money? And he said, actually, yes, I, I am. And he was an absolute genius. And, um, and I'll read to you my lead for the obituary. So these, which look like, I don't know if you ever saw Doonesbury going through Ronald Reagan's brain. Um, <laughs> these are uh, early schematics that Larry drew when Bob Taylor asked him to draw what he thought a computer network might look like. A friend of mine who's a, an art curator in New York thought that um, these would be, this is like found art. She wanted to actually put them on display. They belong in the Smithsonian. And uh, let me just read you the lead of, of my obituary. So he, this is all the noodling that was going on in, in Larry's head. And when I, was, um, when I was researching the book, so Matt and I divided the work and I got to go hang with the total geeks and he, and he hung with the less geeky guys. I don't know how we divided that labor, but anyway. Um, so I was uh, in Larry Roberts' house in Woodside, California, and I said, and he was describing to me what he had drawn. I said, well, do you have the drawings? And, um, and he said, well, they might be in the garage. So we go out into the garage. He goes in these you know, totally dusty, dirty boxes, and you know how they get really kind of musty and wet? And he opens one of these boxes, and out come these amazing drawings. And um, so here's what I wrote at the beginning of his obit. This is the lead. In late 1966, a 29-year-old computer scientist drew a series of abstract figures on tracing paper and a quadrille pad. Some resembled a game of cat's cradle. Others looked like heavenly constellations, and still others, like dress patterns. Those curious drawings were the earliest topological maps of what we now know as the internet. The doodler, Lawrence G. Roberts, died on December 26th at his home in Redwood City, California. He was 81. The Times doesn't usually go for like soft leads like that, but um, usually it's the who, what, where, when. But um, I thought it was important to give it some color. So this is what he drew, and he ended up with, um, here are some other maps as well. He ended up with what is known as a distributed network, and indeed, by what I would say is coincidence, that kind of networking scheme that he came up with could survive 
something like a nuclear attack because what that kind of networking does is route around the damage. So if one of the nodes goes out, it just finds another way around, unlike a, a centralized network where everything would have to go to the center. Like, for instance, an air, uh, think of a, a hub, um, an airplane, you know, a, an airline hub. If, if the hub goes out, the airline has a problem, with, um, and that's what he was, the kind of network he designed actually, um, actually avoided that. So what Larry did, he was now in charge um, of, I think I'll just go back to his picture because that's our genius. He was in charge of not just designing the network, um, uh, but also of taking this thing out to bid. So we're in the late 1960s. He sends it out for bid. This, this kind of scrappy little company called Bolt, Baranek, and Newman um, uh, bid on it and managed to get the contract and they managed to get it over IBM and other big big guys to build what they call um, what we now know as today's router and um, the thing at that time was probably the size of oh you know how they say that the size of a room uh, but pretty huge probably this whole thing um, big mi mini computer which is a an oxymoron, but um, they called it a mini computer at the time. And uh, they, uh, these folks at Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, they called themselves the Imp Guys. And they, uh, there they are. <laughs> and um, and they, uh, there they are with their, with their Imp. And, uh, and they put this thing on a plane after it was done. When they got the contract, I have to tell you, Senator Ted Kennedy, you know, nobody knew anything about this stuff. And Ted Kennedy sends them a, te a telegram congratulating them. So this was called the Interface mes Message Processor. Um, and he said, congratulations on the Interfaith Message Processor. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they fly this thing on, on, a, on a plane out to LA. It gets uh, installed. In fact, we're coming up at the end of October, on the 50th anniversary of the installation of um, the first uh, node, network node, at UCLA. Um, so that was the first node, and you kind of have to wonder, well, you know, who did they talk to if there was, there, it's like one hand clapping. And so very quickly, the next node came up at SRI, which was called Stanford Research International at the Stanford Research Institute, which became SRI, um, up in Menlo Park, California. So they had something to talk, talk about. And, um, but they didn't actually talk. There was no talking. In fact, the first thing they did um, was just try to log in. And then they got to the, they got the L, the O, the G, the I, and then the whole thing crashed. And that was, that was the way it all started. And it, it grew very quickly. Um, to what we have today, which is the 150 um, billion hosts. And, uh, and there began to be, around the time I started the book, so I, the way um, I got involved with this, as I said, I've written about technology for many years. I started in 1983, which was the year before the 
the Mac, the Apple Macintosh was introduced. I was, I started the year the Apple Lisa was introduced, and Steve Jobs came through our office, and, and I'm like, what is this? So uh, that was a mouse, um, and. The book talks about, um, so uh, in 1993, what happened was a friend um, called me. He said, Katie, maybe you want to write a history of the internet. And I said, that sounds fascinating. And I called my agent, and he said, that sounds unbelievably boring. <laughs> and I had written a book about computer hackers in the late 80s, so he sent it only to my editor at Simon & Schuster because he thought he would, that that editor was the only person who might even give it the time of day. And thank goodness Simon & Schuster, Simon and Schuster thought it was a good idea. It came out in 1996. Um, and it, believe it or not, it's still in print. Um, my late husband and I used to call it the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, not a lot, <laughs> but hey, as my mother would say, I wouldn't kick it out of bed. So. So I have a whole chapter here um, on email and the development of email, which is a very fun chapter. It ended up getting excerpted in the Washington Post when the book, um, when the book came out. And I just have to tell you, just in contrast, so put a bookmark here, because you're going to hear all the dark stories from the other people in the rest of the series. But what these guys. Um, the early guys on the ARPANET who, as I said, they were just doing research into, you know, what computer networking was like, like what could you do on a computer, the email started to, it was the fastest, most, the fastest growing application on the network, people really took to it, and one of the wars, this was the war that they had at the time, it was over <laughs> the length of headers. <laughs> So it was called the header wars. And some people saw that there were too many fat and frivolous headers, the electronic, the electronic equivalent of noting the cotton rag content of a sheet of stationery. Short messages with cumbersome headers always appeared top-heavy, out of balance, emphasizing the header rather than the message. So, you know, today's headers are very streamlined, to, from, subject, content, right? So, so someone wrote a parody of the header, and I'll read you only a few, because it goes, the header goes on for pages and pages, and one is um, from Bob Chancellor to Cheese Co-op at CMU, Carnegie Mellon, another... <clears throat> geeky institution, to Brian Reed, sender, blah, 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 subclass, class A, your sequence, blah, blah, sequence, author, typist, Fred, <laughs> terminal, TTY88, blah, blah, reason, did Godzilla need a reason? Is <laughs> it so valid, not before 12th of April, 1977, so now we're in the 70s, blah, 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 weather, light, rain, fog. <laughs> Psych evaluation of sender, slightly unstable. Security level public, number of people in terminal room, 12. <laughs> and then stuff I don't understand. And then machines, M&Ms available, but almond machine is empty. <laughs> so they were, I mean, they were smart, funny guys. But then when this thing really took off, and I was working on the book, 
So here's a photograph from um, a 1994 reunion in Boston. That's at the the Mappa. What's it called? The Mappatorium. What is it called in Boston? Um, the Ma the Mapparium. It um, in Boston and. They assembled all of them. That's Vince Cerf in the front, who was the um, author of a famous paper about TCPIP and is often called the father of the internet, and that's, um, it's hugely controversial. Um, because before the internet basically turned into this, which was, <laughs> These guys thought they had a pretty good thing on their hands, and and uh, they were all sort of vying for credit. And that's one of the things that I find um, kind of unpleasant about uh, about writing about. It. I love. I just have to throw this in. It's so incredibly funny. I hope people in the back can read it. What's to prevent some total stranger anywhere in the world from paying my bills? <laughs> So then, uh, so one thing that people ask a lot is, you know, well, where is the internet? And I saw this in, <laughs> I saw this in, um, I think I was in England and I had to take this picture. And, uh, and, and I wrote to my daughter, I texted my daughter, and I said, found it. <laughs> so uh, what you do need to know, and I'll just tell you this, and then we'll, I'll tell you just a little bit more about this jockeying for credit, is that 99% um, of international data is transmitted by wires at the bottom of the ocean called submarine communications cables, and they're installed by special cable boats called cable layers. So it's not like a bunch of flat satellites fly around. Or, um, they total hundreds of thousands of miles in length and can be as deep as Everest is tall. Shallow ones have roughly the diameter of a soda can, deep ones a magic marker. And for some reason, sharks have been gnawing away at the cable. Maybe that'll solve it. Sharks for hire. And companies like Google have been wrapping their cables in shark-proof wrapping. So <clears throat> here's the question. Um, who really started this thing? What I'd like to do, I mean, it's been, I've written quite a bit. I mean, I'm boring myself at this point, but I've written so much about who really started uh, the internet. You know, there's the ARPANET, and then in 1973, when the TCPIP paper came out and networks could be, um, could be connected to each other, it became the internet. Um, and, um, and people started to get very proprietary about it. What I want to do is, is read you um, something that Paul Barron, um, he was our man many, many slides ago, uh, who had written all those papers and, and described a network using packet switching that could survive a nuclear attack. And he was one of the most, sort of, he had the most generous spirit of, of, of anyone I've, I'd ever met. 
And I ended the obituary of, of Paul with this quote from him. The process of technological developments is like building a cathedral. <clears throat> Over the course of several hundred years, new people come along and each lays down a block on top of the old foundations, each saying, I built a cathedral. Next month, another block is placed atop the previous one. Then comes along a historian who asks, well, who built the cathedral? Peter added some stones here, and oopsie, and Paul, a few there, whoopsie, sorry about that. And if you're not careful, you can con yourself into thinking that you built a cathedral. So um, that's how I ended the, the obit, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to also touch on, um, and also this, this fight, I have to tell you, continues. So when I do these advanced obit interviews with the, with the creators of the ARPANET, um, I, give, I offer uh, an embargo. And I say, um, in journalism speak, that's, you know, it won't be published until the, at certain date, and this the date for this would be like when it runs, which means you won't see it, and you don't have to worry about whatever you said. And um, <laughs> so I would offer this embargo, and people would say, often people would, I'd say, um, what would you, what would you like to tell me that you haven't really talked about? And several people have said, I'm just so unhappy about this fight, um, about who should have the credit for, um, for building this. So uh, I guess they'll duke it out in the, in the next life. So I'm going to read to you um, just to end this, and then I'd love to take questions. Again, don't ask me about blockchain. Um, Something that um, I asked Larry Roberts during his uh, during uh, the interview with him, I said, "What do you see as the biggest problem?" And um, and uh, he said, uh, "The biggest pro in 2018, the biggest problem Dr. Roberts saw with the internet was network security." Quote: I envision someday getting software into the network that helps curb attacks but that's going to take a lot of work, he said. It's got to be distributed around the network in order to solve the problem. So that's the project I keep thinking about, but I don't have a solution. He was quick to dismiss detractors who said the internet had sparked the demise of brick and mortar retail stores. I think it's wonderful and I think they should go out of business. <laughs> because going to the store is ridiculous, he said. The doorbell rang, and Dr. Roberts excused himself to take delivery of groceries he had ordered online. <laughs> so thank you very much, and I'd love to take questions if anyone has them. Can, um, can I ask a geeky his historian's question? Why are we so obsessed with like ascribing 
something to a single individual, right? Why, why do you, I mean, I was gonna ask you a non-internet question, but what, what is the obsession with attributing the internet to a single individual? It's kind of got belies the way that human beings actually create things. We're all kind of plagiarizers and borrowers, and um, you know, Henry Ford didn't create the assembly line, yet we still talk about Ford being the creator of the assembly line. Why are we so worried about attributing the creation of the internet to an individual in fact, it seems to me the process at which these individuals work together is, is where the magic really is. Where the magic really is. Um, I think it has to, something to do with human nature and our need for heroes. I mean, that's kind of I'm just making that up, but uh, but that's my guess. Uh, I mean, think about anything like the whole DNA. You know, Rosalind Franklin. I know we're all sick of hearing that now, but the, you know, she she was really given short shrift, but the Watson and Crick thing, that's our myth, and we hold fast to that myth, and, it, and, it, and it, that's okay, then we can, we can sleep at night, right? And so we want someone, I mean, people often point to Vince Cerf as the father of the internet, and in many ways, he was, and he's not just that, he's a huge champion of the internet. He's now Google's chief internet evangelist. Um, but, uh, but yeah. I think that's, uh, I mean, it goes all the way back to Moses, right? <laughs> Could you tell us the difference between the web and the internet? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. So um, when I was at Newsweek, uh, this was in the early 1990s, uh, Whenever we were, so we would write, it, the inter, write about the internet, and then we would, if we used the phrase the World Wide Web, we had to use a dependent clause, the multimedia portion of the internet. So it's really a layer on top of the internet that allows for what we see, what we see in the, um, that allows for the, pictures and the graphics, that the internet itself is very command-based. And so it's really an application that sits on top of the internet using um, a browser. Uh, so you have to use a browser, which makes it, you, which, which enables you to, to even get onto the web. And the web was designed by, um, as I said, um, a computer scientist at CERN in Switzerland named Tim Berners-Lee. And he is often considered the creator of the internet just because people don't know the difference. I don't know if everybody remembers where they were. I remember where I was when I first saw the web for the first time when I was in, in Austin. My husband and late husband Matt and I were living in Austin. Um, and he worked in the big tower at UT Austin, that big tall tower. And I went up to his office and he said, Katie, you're not going to believe this. Look at this. And, and I look. And it's that coffee machine. Do you remember the, when the web first came? There was like a, a camera on a coffee machine, a coffee maker, a coffee pot in England. And all you could see was that. And I said, wow. <laughs> and then he showed me a picture, a beautiful color picture of a parrot. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that was, that's because for someone who I had spent years as a computer writer, you know, entering what were basically Unix commands in order to navigate, in order to, you know, 
email addresses were done with exclamation marks, which were called bangs, and it was all very, you know, t text coded and text driven, and um, but not this. Thank you. Did that clear things up? I hope so. Yes. Goodness. Um, I'd like to uh, ask a, a nerd question uh -oh. and then an old person question. Okay, nerd question followed by old person question. So, <laughs> in, How about an old nerd? <laughs> um, so when they started out, everything was mainframe. So the, all the computers were mainframes, and they had dumb terminals attached to that. And then the computer, then the 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 internet came through, and they found out they, they could start transporting um, data and information back and forth, and they, they could distribute everything. So they didn't have to have mainframes anymore. Everything was distributed. But then they started recreating the mainframe with a bunch of distributed computers. You mean they ended up replacing the mainframe with distributed computers? So they recreated the mainframe. Oh, I see. Right. Distrib the, con the mainframe concept. Right. Right, right. Distributed and, and then it's like they've redistributed, they recreated the same item again. Mm hmm And then, so that's... Is that a question? So well, the question is, is that, you know, how much, you know, is there a lot of that recreation happening? Oh, I see. Well, I mean, think about it, the cloud. I mean... But, and and, the, and the, the old person question is, is that the cloud is, the cloud, and then you have your Chromebooks, which is a dumb terminal. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that the cloud is just a, distrib a distributed mainframe, and, uh, and, and, and that's where we're heading towards now. But what happens when all of a sudden the, the internet isn't there for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and the only way that you can use right. your device is, is right there? Is if, yeah, if you touch such it. a good question. That's like a cosmic, existential question. Like. Um, yeah, if, if everything, um, you know, is in the cloud, what is, what is local? What does it mean to do any kind of local computing anymore? And, I mean, we do it. We have, I mean, our, our iPhone is, is, everything is a computer. Our car is a computer and a lot. And so, um, for instance, if you see, you know, if, you're, if it says, you know, do you want to do, do this on your phone or on the cloud, you know, then you have to bear in mind that what is on your phone, only what you've told it to put on your phone is truly local. Everything else is in the cloud somewhere, um, is, is distributed. It's, it's, it's what we have now. And it's a little scary. Um, what scares me more and what I've wrote about a lot at the New York Times is, um, and this is just everyone starts running away when I start talking about this, so feel free, but um, <laughs> it's, it's what I call um, what gets left behind. And um, I, I sort of got editors in New York would just hide under their desk. Here comes Katie. She's going to talk about this. It's, um, it's like what happens when things do not go online? You know, what about all the important, like, historical and literary? To me, it's a profound question of, you know, redefining the boundaries of knowledge. Kids these days, if it's not on the Internet, if it's not on Google, it doesn't exist. And um, it's a huge problem. 
and not just that, but also the migration from someone at dinner was talking about um, VHS, the VHS machines getting taken out of the classrooms and when this one professor uses VHS tapes and because it's called migration, that isn't happening. All our, all our photos, I did a front page story about how, you know, what, what happens when we can't look at our photos anymore and the entire nation panicked because, and so that, to, you know, the more distributed things become, the more dangerous it is, that's true, but I also um, I get very worried about um, digital archiving um, in general, because I started this one story with the uh, John Steinbeck archives in Salinas, California, where they don't have the money to put them online. And so if you want to study this one manuscript, you have to go to Salinas, California. So that's kind of a long-winded um, non-answer. <laughs> yes? It sounds like you do a lot of these advanced obituaries. I do. And um, I can imagine that you have many, quest or many questions that are common across those that you interview or close to common. And so what I'm curious about is what, what, uh, what do you recall as the most striking contrasts those of you have interviewed have said? And what are some of the most interesting common themes that you've heard? You mean among the uh, um, the internet pioneers? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, the most stark contrast probably has to do with what I said earlier about um, those who, Larry Roberts, for instance, he started 12 companies. He was that interested in, in, in making a lot of money and only one of them succeeded versus John Postel, who was my, for years, my personal hero, who is the one who came um, among many other achievements, John Postel. Um, he came up with the domain names like edu and <clears throat> .com. And, um, and I said to him once, and he died quite young and quite suddenly, and, but I said to him once when I was working on the book, John, why did you never want to make money? And um, he said, why would I? He said, what I've done is, a, what I do is a public service. Unfortunately, because of, um, of uh, tech, technical migration problems, I don't have that email anymore because it's on like 10 computers ago. But um, I wish I could call it up. Uh, it was a, he answered it beautifully and as if, it was as if I had asked him, why do you breathe? Uh, and then what they had in common was <laughs> unbelievable nerdiness, which I find <laughs> so endearing. I, uh, I loved it every minute of every interview I ever did with any of them where they were so, um, you know, earnestly technical. And, and one thing about, about, um, about their approach to a man, I, I hate to say it, but absolutely everyone was a man. I just did an obit on a, a woman <clears throat> who I actually didn't know about when I was working on the book, um, an expert in network congestion. But um, to a man, they would emphasize the rigor 
of their science. And, uh, and that was very compelling to me as a, as a writer. Yes, there's one right there. Do you want to grab the mic? Or you want to just yell? <laughs> you don't look like a yeller. Why don't you go over there? <laughs> Thank you. My question is about uh, how the internet influences the citizen participation in democracy. So everyone can say something online, but uh, in the end, still, it's the media or good writers like you that, monopoli that monopolize our speech market. So oh, wait. I think time's up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> that is a great question, and I, I think one thing the internet has, has most definitely done is brought a, a wider democracy to, to viewpoints. My fear, and I know a lot of people might have the same fear, is that we tend to go to the same sources, so we just are in an echo chamber. Um, I do not think and I say this humbly, I don't think that the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal are monopolizing um, the discourse. Uh, in fact, it's, they're taken along with these amazing um, online sources like Politico and BuzzFeed and um, and and others, what did you say? <laughs> Infowars, Info right. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a tough balancing act right now, but what I can say um, about the New York Times is that we continue to um, lose sleep over mistakes. I always have. And um, if I spell someone's name wrong, I am um, mortified. Uh, and I, to, to many, to the credit of many of these outlets, I think that that is largely true. I think we have a, some notable outliers that shall remain unnamed, and it's just what it is. It's um, it's something we're grappling with every day. Yes. Oh, Sally Floyd, thank you for asking. Um, so Sally Floyd, he asked who, the, the woman, you mean the network congestion expert? Yeah, I, believe me, I won't go into this, but um, she, I, uh, I got it. I'll confess this to you and everyone else there in the live streaming audience. I, um, I got an email from the obit editor and he said, Katie, do you think this is worthy of a Times obit? And I'm like, are, are you kidding, a woman who, had hugely technical, a hugely technical achievement. And um, I said, I think so. And, uh, and so I'm really, really glad. And people were very glad to see that obit. Yes. Oh, I think we have, did you stand up yet? Okay. <laughs> when, when Dean Peart stands up, then we have one more question. So watch it. Okay, just just real quickly, um, in your interviewing these the founding fathers, so to speak, of the internet, 
at the time that they were doing the work? Did they have a feeling of destiny or what they were building, or were they just doing technical stuff? I would say largely the latter. Did everyone hear the question? Um, they, you mean, there's destiny and then there's destiny. I, I don't, I actually don't think they even had any clue that it would grow the way it did. And, you know, what really kick-started the growth was when um, it was cleared for commercial use, and that was around 1989. And uh, before that, it really was just, you know, universities and other research places and defense um, contractors had uh, access to the internet. It wasn't easy to get on. It was expensive to get on. And, um, and there was a lot of cachet to it. And then um, I don't think, I really do not think that when, when um, Cerf and Vince Cerf and Bob Kahn did TCP IP, they weren't thinking, oh, this is going to be massively scalable. Um, does that answer your question? There she goes. Okay, we have one more. I think it was you there. Yeah, science marches on and the law seems to follow it at an increasingly distant Can everyone hear this? <clears throat> Excuse me. I said science marches on, but the law follows it, but at a seemingly slower pace. Was there any thought given that you have come across that they considered what the legal ramifications were of what they were creating and where it might go? No, I, I don't. I don't think they thought that the that legal questions came into it one iota. Alrighty, thank you very much. Before you depart, uh, let me ask you to join me once more in thanking Katie Hafner for starting off this series. <laughs> As well, I want to let you know that there will be a book signing in the lobby. You can continue the conversation there. We have a reception as well. Uh, and please mark your calendars for October 7th when Derek Thompson will be here to talk about economics and the internet. So thanks very much. Have a nice evening.